We turn now to the New Testament to First Peter, and we'll read the first chapter and also the first uh, three verses of chapter 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who, without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, 
that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Let's also turn in connection with our scripture reading to Article 6 of the Belgian Confession. The title of Article 6 is the difference between canonical and apocryphal books. We distinguish between these holy books and the apocryphal ones, which are the third and fourth books of Esdras, the books of Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Jesus Sirach, Baruch, what was added to the story of Esther, the song of the three children in the furnace, the story of Susanna, the story of Bel and the dragon, the prayer of Manasseh, and the two books of the Maccabees. The church may certainly read these books and learn from them, as far as they agree with the canonical books, but they do not have such power and virtue that one could confirm from their testimony any point of faith or of the Christian religion, much less can they detract from the authority of the other holy books. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the last few verses of 1 Peter 1, as we've read, contrast man and his glory with the the abiding, incorruptible word of God. Uh, Man is a, a dying creature, we may say. He's made of dust, and he's subject to all kinds of infirmities and weakness of body and mind. And ultimately, if he lives long enough, he loses the strength and abilities that he possessed in his youth and in his prime, and he dies and returns to dust. And that means that the achievements and the physical beauty and strength, uh, the wealth and power of man in this life are all fading. They are failing things. But the word of the Lord is incorruptible and unfailing. And that passage makes that contrast. And that contrast has very much to do with the subject of Article 6 of the Belgian Confession. The difference between the sacred, that is the holy canonical books that make up the Bible, and the apocryphal books uh, concerns that difference between what is of man and what is of God. The difference between what is corruptible, weak, ineffectual, lacking glory, and what is powerful and what is glorious, with which there can be no quarrel at all. Remember how the Belgic Confession uses that language to describe the absolute perfection and authority of Scripture. There's nothing found in Scripture that one could raise any kind of legitimate objection or quarrel whatsoever. It concerns the difference between the word of men and the word of God. That's also a very succinct way of putting it. And we uh, confess that difference, and we confess it over against a a specific danger of mixing these two things together. And that danger is posed by the place that these apocryphal books have sometimes been given in the history of the church. At times, it has not been carefully distinguished from the sacred books. And uh, still today, it's placed on the same level with the sacred books by the official uh, teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, for example, and their official confessions. You know, the Roman Catholic Church also has its official doctrinal statements and confessions, as we do. And those official statements, as we'll hear, 
include the Apocrypha in Holy Scripture. And uh, that's the most serious thing, to mix these things, to mix the Word of God with the Word of man. Sometimes we hear of the danger of a, of a corrupted or a contaminated uh, blood supply. That's because sometimes as a result of sickness or accident, people need a supply of blood from others. And thankfully, we have the technology uh, to store blood that is donated by volunteers uh, to meet such emergencies. But if that blood is supplied by people who themselves are diseased, uh, and this bad blood is not detected and separated from the good blood, then you could speak of a corrupted blood supply. Now, that doesn't mean that every every uh, bag of blood that might be available is is corrupted, but it only means that the bad is not clearly distinguishable from the good. And that poses real danger because you don't know what you're going to get. And that might illustrate the danger of confusion over what is the Word of God and what is not. This may illustrate the danger posed by Satan's attempt to mix the Word of men with the Word of God. That doesn't mean that God's Word is truly corrupted. That could never be. That's impossible. His Word is powerful and it's incorruptible. But if His Word is confused with or mixed with man's Word, people might look in the wrong place for that power. Or our sinfulness will lead us to obscure it by preferring man's words. Or we may weaken the value of God's word by trying to make it fit and trying to make it harmonize with what is false and with what is merely from man. Now in our confession of the the difference between the canonical books, that is the actual books that make up Holy Scripture and the apocryphal books, we are confessing uh, God's uh, sovereign grace and his uh, work in preserving his word from corruption. And he did so by leading his church to, to know and to confess this difference between the holy word of God and the words of men, contained particularly in what are called the apocryphal books. He preserved his church uh, from a corrupted Bible. And we'll consider this under three headings. First, the danger identified, and then that danger described, and then thirdly, the danger defeated. So we begin uh, by identifying very clearly what that danger is. And it came in the form of these 12 or so books called the apocryphal books. Now, the word apocryphal is probably a word that many of you have, have never either heard or never really paid attention to before, but it is a word that is derived from a Greek word that means hidden. And our use of the term relates uh, to the ancient Jewish use of this word to describe writings that were withdrawn from general circulation because they were regarded as inferior. And the Jews had a high regard for religious writings of every kind, and so they, they hesitated to dis- destroy copies of such religious writings but they would uh, deposit such writings in a secret place or bury them so that they wouldn't be confused or mixed uh, with the Holy Scriptures. And this is close to our use of the term to identify books that are excluded from the public use of the church by way of official preaching and teaching as if they were somehow on the same level with God's Word. 
But the question we want to consider also is where did these books come from? Where did the apocryphal books uh, originate? Well, they were written by various Jews during the intertestamental period. And by that we mean that period between the completion of uh, the, uh, the book of Malachi and his prophecy and the coming of Christ. That period of 400 some years. And uh, these books that were written during that time include a variety of different kinds of literature. And uh, we can't we can't give any kind of fulsome summary of these books. But if you are interested, uh, uh, the apocryphal books are readily available. You can go on Amazon and you can Google the apocrypha and you could get a copy of the apocryphal books easy enough uh, to read them for yourselves. Let me just say a few things about the kinds of things that they deal with. And some of them are historical accounts. Uh, for example, the third book of Esdras uh, describes the covenant people from the time of Josiah to the return from Babylon. And it covers some of the same material that is found in the canonical books of Ezra. There is some repetition, but with some additional material. And there, there is value to some of that additional historical material. Uh, the books of Maccabees, first and second Maccabees, are also uh, their national um, historical books. They are accounts, and perhaps they are the most valuable books in the Apocrypha because they do give important and quite accurate accounts of the Jewish wars of independence against the Syrians. And they're fascinating accounts. They're accounts of, of heroism and faith in God. They're edifying. There's many things that are useful in them. Uh, the book of Judith also is a nationalistic, uh, patriotic account of how a Jewish widow supposedly saves her people. Uh, by her charm and beauty, she wins the confidence of the head of the Syrian army and then manages to kill him, much like Jael uh, killed Sisera in the book of Judges. There is the appendix to Esther, which claims to continue the canonical book of Esther. And it amplifies the account there with some more detail. And then there are a number of stories of a more private uh, character, such as the book of Tobit. And this is really quite a fanciful tale about a Jewish family. And then there are three more uh, books that make up additions uh, to our canonical book of, of Daniel. Uh, among them, the Song of the Three Children in the Furnace, the History of Susanna, Susanna is a woman uh, supposedly saved from an unjust death by Daniel, and then a book called Bell and the Dragon, in which Daniel supposedly proves that the king of Babylon is no god, but simply a dragon uh, whom Daniel kills. And then there are books of wisdom, literature that is much like the book of Proverbs. Uh, Baruch supposedly provides additions to Jeremiah's prophecy, and then there is the prayer of Manasseh. It's a fictitious prayer of remorse and conviction that's attributed to Manasseh, the king of Judah. You recall the, the story of Manasseh who repented while he was a captive of the Assyrians. Uh, but that should be enough by way of a, of a brief overview. It might whet your appetite to inquire a little bit more and read, read it from these apocryphal books. But the question arises, why has the identity of these books become an issue at all? 
And that's a question we might ask in view of the fact that there are many uninspired books that really pose no danger, uh, at, at least in the history of the church, a serious danger of being mixed with the Word of God. Uh, so why these? And one important explanation for this is the fact that they were included in a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There are some sections written in Aramaic, but the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. But about 250 years before the coming of Christ, uh, supposedly some 70 Jewish scholars, that's why it's often indicated uh, by LXX, the Roman numeral 70, indicating 70 authors. Uh, some 70 Jewish scholars that lived in Alexandria, Egypt, translated the Hebrew scriptures uh, into Greek. And this is not a bad thing. In the providence of God, this supplied the scriptures to many Greek-speaking Jews that were scattered uh, about. And while some of the books were true, uh, poorly translated, uh, the apostles uh, in the New Testament themselves uh, quoted from this Greek translation on many occasions. And uh, we remember that Greek was the language that was commonly spoken in the Roman Empire in the time of Christ and of the apostles and in the early church. And many of uh, these God-fearers and early Christians had uh, had possession of a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, they were quoted as familiar to many of them. But for some reason, the apocryphal books, uh, which had also been written in Greek in the first place, were included with the Septuagint, as if they belonged together with uh, this Greek translation of the Holy Scriptures. And so it's from this that we can understand how these books came to be overvalued. For many Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike, as I said, the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was in effect their Bible. But through it, they not only had the Old Testament, but these other books. And these books then tended to gain some respect simply because of their connection with the sacred books. And this accounts for the differences even among early church leaders in the way that the Apocrypha was regarded. And again, it must be said that they were never universally regarded as equal to the Scriptures. But the fact is that there was some confusion about this, and the issue was not clear, and that was the danger. There were church fathers who themselves did not clearly distinguish the sacred books from the apocryphal. Jerome and Athanasius, whom we know in connection with his great uh, creed on the Trinity, were among them. But the church had not yet clarified the issue by a decided rejection of the canonical books. And obedience to the word of God required such a rejection. And we may see this clearly as we look more fully at the kind of danger that the Apocrypha poses uh, for our adherence to God's word. So we consider the danger described. You recall the, the warning that we considered some weeks ago that's found at the close of the book of Revelation, the last book, and this warning is found in the last chapter of the book of Revelation, and it's a warning against adding to or taking away from the word of God. And that is the real issue. If the Apocrypha was inspired, 
Well, then we dare not reject it, for that would be to take away from God's word. But since the Apocrypha is not inspired, we dare not include it with the God-breathed scriptures, nor may we respect it as such. This distinction is crucial. It is necessary. Again, the Bible places a very sharp contrast between man's opinion and man's word and God's word. In God's charge against the, the false prophets who wrongly claimed to speak for him, God said in the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 23, what is the chaff to the wheat? What comparison is there between the wholesome nourishment of wheat and that that empty, dusty husk that just blows away in the wind. Well, there is as much difference between God's will and the uninspired ideas of false prophets as there is a difference between chaff and wheat. God says, Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? God's word has efficacy. It has power. And in the same passage there in Jeremiah, God promised to punish those who falsely claim to speak God's word. Now, I'm not saying that uh, the writers of the Apocrypha were guilty of this. In fact, some of them denied outright. You can read their denials. Some of them denied outright that they were speaking God's word. But if others, in confusion or a lack of care, place their words on the level with God's, well, the same basic error is committed. The same danger has entered the church. So if the radical difference between man's words and God's word is not maintained, it's God's word that will suffer, suffer this confusion. It's impossible to maintain God's word and man's word on the same level of authority. And the result of elevating man's word to that authority, the result of that is pulling down God's word. You see, if you give way uh, to a false authority, you lower the true authority. Let me read you an article of another confession. I mentioned it earlier uh, that the Roman Catholic Church has its official doctrines. And uh, I'm going to read an article that in many respects actually sounds a lot like our own as it enumerates the books of, of, uh, of Scripture, which is officially identified and adhered to Sounds like our own, but takes a radically different position on this issue. It's from the Council of Trent, dating back to 1546. The Council of Trent was kind of an official Roman Catholic response to the Reformation, which it might be argued really signals the formal and official apostasy of, uh, of the medieval church, uh, because they were hardened in their positions against the gospel, against biblical teaching. They spelled it out. They spelled out the teaching that they rejected. And much of that teaching was the true teaching of the gospel, of the word of God. So it's the official position of the Roman Catholic Church in their decree, it's called, concerning the canonical scriptures. And I'll read from that. It says, The church receives and venerates with a feeling of piety and reverence all the books, both of the Old and New Testaments, since one God is the author of both. Also the traditions whether they relate to faith or to morals, as having been dictated either orally by Christ or by the Holy Ghost and preserved in the Catholic Church in unbroken succession, 
It is thought it proper, moreover, to insert in this decree a list of the sacred books, lest a doubt might arise in the mind of someone as to which are the books received by this council. They are the following. In the Old Testament, the five books of Moses, namely Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the four books of Kings, and by that they mean First and Second Samuel and First uh, and Second Kings. Uh, two of the Paralipomenon, we heard that this is a, 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 an old um, name for the books of Chronicles, which we regard and receive as canonical. And then the first and second of Esdras, the latter of which is called Nehemiah, Tobias, Judith, Esther, Job, the Davidic Psalter of 150 Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Canticle of Canticles, that's the Song of Solomon, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Isaiah, Jeremiah, with Baruch, Ezekiel, Daniel, the twive, 12 minor prophets, namely Hosea, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonas, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Sophonias, Zacharias, Haggai, Zacharias, Malachi, two books of the Maccabees, the first and the second. And then it goes on to spell out the New Testament. Now you recognize that uh, they acknowledge the very same books that make up our whole scriptures, except with additions. And those additions really are those which belong uh, to the Apocrypha. But it goes on to speak very emphatically. It says, if anyone does not accept as sacred and canonical the aforesaid books in their entirety, in all their parts, as they have been accustomed to be read in the Catholic Church and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition and knowingly and deliberately rejects the aforesaid traditions, let him be anathema. That's a curse against us, folks. That's what it is. That's what it involves. A curse against those that don't accept, along with the Holy Scriptures, these other books that were enumerated there. The Vatican Council of 1870 also declared the Apocrypha divine and canonical. And it's the very nature of the, of the, the authority of the Roman Catholic magisterium that they never retract official doctrines. They sometimes modify and add things that seems to, to soften some of the language, but they never uh, retract it, because that would be to deny the foundation of their existence, which is church tradition. Now, what is the practical outworking of this position in the Roman Catholic Church? Well, it's not so much a high and holy regard for the Apocrypha, but actually a low view of Scripture as a whole and the elevation of human tradition in its place. You see, if you claim to hold to uh, tradition alongside of the Scripture, what is going to prevail? It's tradition. Because the tradition is the official interpretation of Scripture with additions based on the idea of continuing revelation from God through the Holy Spirit, through the pronouncements of popes and councils. And those traditions then basically trump, they supersede the authority of Scripture on many points. The Roman Catholic Church failed in the critical demand to distinguish between the authority of God's word and the authority of man's words. And they still fail to escape this danger by claiming divine authority on the pronouncements of councils and popes. It's the same error as a failure to confess the word of God as above all. If a clear and decisive difference is not maintained between God's word 
and man's word, there is no certain authority. There is no certain authority for faith and life. And there's no stopping point, really, either to the additions that might be made. We might say, why stop at the Apocrypha? There are other books, the Gospel of Thomas, many of them could be named that claim to be religious books of value. There are many other ancient religious writings that date back to the time of Christ. Couldn't the church just decide that they want to include them in the canon now as well? You see the danger. And this is the threat that is involved in any fuzzy views on the scope of the canon. This is the danger that results from any fuzzy views on whether the word of God as we possess it is complete, infallible, and in contrast with all human writings. And for this reason, brothers and sisters, we may rejoice in the fact that God preserved his word from corruption by defeating this danger in the true church. I realize that this is a subject that is uh, probably new to many of you, and it seems rather obscure and irrelevant. Uh, but the value of, of uh, recognizing the significance of this confession is the value of recognizing God's faithful, preserving, gracious work in the church. And that leads us to consider, thirdly, the danger defeated. And, of course, the honor of this defeat belongs to God. That's always the case with every triumph of the church over Satan's devices. It's God's work that preserved the scriptures from corruption. And he did so through the power of his Holy Spirit, indeed, working in the church. Just as the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, the Holy Spirit also guided the true church to receive those scriptures and reject what does not properly belong with them. But here again, it's important to look at that in a proper way. I just emphasize the role of the Spirit in guiding the church. But the way we think of that matters. Last time we saw that our acceptance of the Word of God does not depend upon the testimony of the church as it depends upon the witness of the Holy Spirit. And this is true also for our understanding of how the Apocrypha became excluded from the canon. And it is not as though a great synod met to scrutinize every book and then vote on whether or not it belonged to the canon. And now we just simply trust their decision. That would be a mischaracterization of this history. It is rather that the Apocrypha simply fell away as powerless and incomparable to the Word of God. And we'll develop that a little bit further. Another way of looking at it is like this. The things that give Scripture, the Holy Scripture, their dignity and authority are lacking in the Apocrypha. There is no witness of the Holy Spirit confirming that they are of God. This witness, I think it's very important to note, was absent among the Jews who possessed these writings hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. They did not receive them as prophetic scriptures. They did not include them with the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament. And this is very important. Romans chapter 3 says that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God preserved his word among uh, the people of Israel. And they refused these human writings. 
And when Jesus identifies the scriptures, whether it be as law or law and prophets or law, psalms and prophets, there is no indication that these books were included. While the Septuagint, yes, the Greek translation of uh, the canonical books were quoted by the apostles, neither Jesus nor any of the apostles ever quoted from the Apocrypha, citing a, a biblical authority because they did not regard it as such. And furthermore, they do not carry within themselves the evidence of being holy in divine scripture. Remember, that's the way our confession describes the actual canonical books. They carry within themselves the evidence of being holy in divine scripture. And on the contrary, there is very much that shows them to be inferior to God's thoughts. There's much that shows them to be erroneous and false. Some of the historical narratives, for example, contain obvious errors that not only conflict with other sources, but they conflict with uh, the canonical books, the holy books of Scripture. Just for one example, in the book of Judith, Judith mentions Nebuchadnezzar as the king of Assyria instead of the king of Babylon. And other books include details that are that are fanciful and, and sometimes just downright ridiculous. In Bell and the Dragon, the author has the prophet Habakkuk feeding Daniel while he's in the lion for killing a dragon. The book of Tobit presents the angel Raphael traveling around with the son of Tobit in a way that conflicts with the Bible's view of angels. It also has miracles that bear no resemblance to the biblical signs of Scripture, confirming God's redemptive power. But they're more like magic. Uh, they're more like uh, hocus-pocus. For example, Tobias escapes death by burning the liver of a fish in order to put a demon to flight. You don't find such things in Scripture. The book of uh, Jesus of Sirach, son of Sirach, one of these wisdom books, gives counsel that is in direct conflict with the word of Christ. And in a passage, I just recently reread it, that is uh, truly derogatory towards women. You know, the Bible is sometimes accused as being derogatory towards women. We totally reject that, that charge. But there is a passage, there is no question about it, that it's derogatory towards women as such, blaming them for the sin of the world, in effect, and counseling husbands that if their wives do not go the way in which they uh, wish them to, that they should cut them off from their flesh and give them a bill of divorce. Makes you wonder if this is something of the background of the Pharisaic question to Jesus. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Well, that opinion was current among some of the Jews. I don't know if this uh, passage has anything to do with it. But uh, if you want to read the 25th chapter of, uh, of this book, you'll see how truly insulting and derogative it is uh, to women. And here's one example where accepting these books as having authority in the church means taking away from the sacred books of Holy Scripture. And many other things could be pointed out that show their human origin. A biggie is the fact that instead of testifying of Christ, as Jesus said, of the whole Old Testament, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, he said to the Jews, and these are they which testify of me. But that's not what you find in the apocryphal books. And often they teach a moralistic and a kind of legalistic view of salvation. And add to the fact that some of these books themselves uh, disclaim divine origin. They deny the divine origin of such writings. 
And so we stand on solid ground in uh, our rejection of these books. They are not inspired, and therefore they do not belong with the Holy Word of God. Now, does that mean that they ought to be destroyed? Does that mean that they ought not to be uh, read, that they constitute dangerous reading or are necessarily misleading? No, that's not uh, a proper understanding of the danger. The danger uh, that we are concerned with is putting them on the same level of Scripture. There are instances when even New Testament writers quote from other sources. Paul quoted from a Greek, a Greek poet, just as an illustration uh, uh, of which uh, some of his audience would be familiar with. So the danger is putting them on par with Scripture. And avoiding that, there is much that is interesting and informative and even edifying in them. It's interesting that the Synod of Dort, 1618, arranged to have them published as kind of an appendix to the official edition of the Dutch Bible. And uh, their limited value was recognized, but they were put in small print with a warning that they are not to be read publicly in the congregation because uh, they do not belong to that canon against which there is no quarrel at all. But they kind of made a concession in publishing them, which itself is debatable as to its value, but it's a historical fact. This is our confession, brothers and sisters. We distinguish by the grace of God the apocryphal books from the sacred word of God. As we began, we heard that all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word has efficacy and power to confirm the doctrine of salvation. It has power to effect salvation, to give new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's through this word that we have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The power of this word has become an experiential reality for true believers. And for this reason, Article 6 is not a mere curiosity. It's another guardian as well as declaration of our faith. If we are to grow in faith, it is by the pure milk of the word of God. And for this reason, we thank God for preserving his word unmixed with human opinion. This is the word that will not return to him empty or void. This is the word that will accomplish the purpose for which he sends it. Amen.